0: Thank you everyone. I'm delighted to be here today and I'd like to thank the organizers for inviting me um, to beautiful Redwood City Um, and it's been great to uh, meet and re-meet many of you uh, during this wonderful weekend. So my topic is um, from defining health disparities to improving health equity in cystic fibrosis and really um, I want to talk about how in spite of the great advances we've had in diagnosis and therapy, we're actually widening health disparities through those advances. Um, and, And we have to really be sure that policy and practice must advance so that every person with CF has a fair and just opportunity to attain their highest level of health. And everyone in this room can do this because regardless of whether you're a scientist, a clinician, a parent of a person with CF, a person with CF, or another member of this community, you have a voice and you can advocate. Um, And we heard some uh, wonderful um, advocacy last night from Ray. Um, So I'm gonna start with the positionality statement. I think this is important. Um, On the left-hand side of this slide, there is a wheel of privilege and power. This is from Canada. I use it intentionally because this exists throughout the world. So I am um, a person who is a U.S. citizen whose parents were U.S. citizens. Um, I am not from an indigenous culture. I have white skin color. I am a cisgender heterosexual person. I went to college. Both my parents went to college. Two of my four grandparents went to college. Three of my four grandparents were born in the United States of America. So I have oozes. I have so much unearned privilege. I walk through the world easily. And one of the things that we have to recognize in the United States and in other cultures that are European, um, particularly Northern European or their colonies, we have this perspective that white is normal and that everything else is different. And even the history of a lot of diversity efforts, a lot of um, school efforts has been to make people from different cultures whiter because white is assumed to be the healthiest and the best. And so as we talk about disparities, it's really important to note how whiteness and white culture has not only neglected people from different backgrounds, but actually increased disparity, stress, um, and uh, social injustice in communities. I'm showing this. um, This is a art um, display from a few years ago called Witness Whiteness, which was really focused on this. And the, um, the artist who put this together is Latina lesbian, who's also my sister in law. So the arts can tell us a lot. I'm going to start with definitions, language and historical context. Because anytime I come into a room, I don't know where everyone is, I want to do some level setting. Um, And so you've probably seen a version of this cartoon before equality is this We treat everyone the same. Equity is we give everyone the opportunity to have the same perspective. Reality is that not everyone has the same power, privilege or ability to do the same thing in the same way, even if you're striving for only equality. And liberation is giving people freedom to be as well as they can be to um, manifest themselves in the world and be their best person. Health disparities are defined as differences in health among population groups. This is an epidemiologic term saying that these people are sicker or more well than those people. Inequity are health disparities that are unfair or stem from injustice, and we're going to talk about a lot of those today. In the much of the literature I'm going to cite, the term minority is used, and you have heard this racial and ethnic minority. Um, I want to be very careful in how that's portrayed, because in some of these slides, I do cite literature the way it's written. Minority in an appropriate context is a mathematical construct, so it's less than half of the whole. You, know, you, all, you all did math in school. Um, so a person is considered a minority group if they differ in some way from people within a specific population. So if they're less than fifty percent. So um, many of you know the wonderful Samia Nasser. She was born in Jordan. She does a lot of work in Egypt, but she's she's a citizen and she works in Michigan. But she's from a minority group in the U.S. If I go to the Middle East, which I was supposed to in 2020, but then this thing happened. Um, I would be a minority. So, but people do use this um, also to say like, oh, that was just a minor problem. Like, it's not important. We don't want to use it that way when we're talking about disparities. Um, I prefer the term minoritized. Um, and this is a racial, religious, political, national, or other group thought to be different from the larger group of which is part, but, but Importantly, has little power or representation um, relative to other groups in society. And I will tell you a story. And I'm going to show this um, some data from this paper. Um, A few years ago, Megan McGarry um, and I put a paper into Pediatric Pulmonology, and the uh, we used this word in the title, and the reviewers were just beside themselves and and it was clear that they weren't gonna allow it. So we changed it to minority. And then I became editor-in-chief of the journal so we can use language the way it means. It's a lot of work, but it was worth it. Um, So race and ethnicity, you've heard this before. These are social constructs. They have no biological meaning. Um, Race was made up politically to um, categorize people so that uh, there could be enslavement and classes that benefited those with the most power and privilege. Um, It has, um, and this is a citation from Dorothy Roberts, who's a critical race theory scholar, staggering biological consequences because of the impact of social inequality on people's health. Now, ethnicity, is defined by shared cultural heritage, sometimes ancestry language or religion, but it also is not um, to be constructed as a biological difference. Um, and furthermore, if you start reading literature from around the world, the way people define these things is wildly different. Um, There is, however, this concept of ancestry and genetic variation, which is it's actually still socially constructed. But if you remember that humans first emerged in Africa and then they immigrated to different places, sometimes in relatively small groups, there is genetic variation around the world that is not something that you can look at by race, but you can use ancestral genetic markers, which are a spectrum, and you see differences in gene variants. And that's true both for gene variants that cause no disease and those that cause disease. So, If you look at this map of the world, um, it gives higher to lower prevalences of cystic fibrosis, Um, but you have to recognize that all of these areas in gray, nobody knows. Um, There's usually no sweat testing available. Many of these are low and middle income countries where public health dollars go into sanitation Vaccinations, and there's not a large healthcare system. So we don't actually know this, um, but uh, it's important in the context of some of the information that I'm going to present. Um, <clears throat> Another big controversy is how and why to use concepts of race and ethnicity in research at all. And so years ago, the Institute of Medicine, which is now the National Academy of Medicine, uh, recommended collecting race and ethnicity to identify needed improvements in healthcare. Think about that as we go along. Um, and, and it measures representation in research too, which crosses, you know, cultures, and there are some genetics that get in there, but not because race is genetic. So um, that is the standard in the United States that's actually being more enforced, particularly in, for example, FDA clinical trials. But in some countries, it's actually forbidden to collect these data. So when we do international clinical trials in cystic fibrosis, we have missing data because of the country law. Um, It's also important to note the long history of race-based medicine and abuse of people in the healthcare system in medicine, um, particularly in the United States. So um, these are some quotes from Dorothy Roberts again, um, that uh, medical students have been taught to take the patient's race into account. So think about what Ray said last night. Think about people who have been told it's not very likely because you're black you know, or because you're South Asian. So much of this goes on. It's in current clinical practice. Um, And there was a study done uh, just a couple years ago where medical students actually, a, a high proportion of them believe that Black people have thicker skin and don't feel pain as easily. Um, this is still in the parlance of medicine as it's practiced today and it's false and it's wrong Um, and and most americans believe that some version of a biological concept of race is true Um, harriet washington wrote this book called called medical apartheid um, which is the uh, very bleak disturbing history of how Black people, particularly but not exclusively enslaved Black people, um, were subject to atrocities um, in the name of medical research. And I think everyone in the room is familiar with the Tuskegee study of syphilis, in which men with syphilis were not treated as a natural history study and underwent all kinds of procedures, being told that there was treatment. And even when penicillin became available for that treatment, the natural history study continued. That natural history study closed when I was already a teenager. Um, you've all heard about implicit and conscious bias, but these are these automatic stereotypes that interface with our brains. Um, the benefit of it is that you can make a quick decision based on something, but it also causes um, people to uh, treat others differently, not listen to them, not believe them. And it is very clear from published studies that US hair healthcare professionals favor white and light-skinned persons, um, and that this has adverse effects on patient provider information, interactions, treatment decisions, adherence, and patient health outcomes. These are not old papers, by the way. Um, Uh, You may know and you may not know about the long history of race adjustment of pulmonary function. Um, And so this was something that justified enslavement of Black people in the United States because it was good for them to do manual labor because their lung function was lower. What makes your lung function lower? Poor nutrition. Poor air quality, um, so uh, exposure has more to do it with genetics. Um, so what this means is that if you had a black person and a white person with their lung function measured, the black person's lung function will look higher. That in cystic fibrosis could affect if you're eligible for a modulator trial, if you're eligible for a transplant. Um, now. In 2014, um, this was written in an elegant book, uh, Breathing Race into the Machine, about this history of spirometry and how it was used and abused, and and that was a few years after one of my colleagues published this paper in the New England Journal of Medicine that showed that race is a terrible predictor of pulmonary function, and um, that if you look at ancestral genetic markers and their distribution, that's much better. So, you know, you're, you're a little like your parents. Um, so, so that makes sense. Um, and uh, the American Thoracic Society published an official statement um, showing, recommending that this not be used. You know how long that took? That was a couple of months ago. So We've had a lot of information that has continued to be applied to clinical practice, even though there's clear evidence that it it causes inequities. Um, I won't go into this in great detail, but um, not surprisingly, there is very good science that states that just being exposed to racism or experiencing racism has strong effects on your general health. Um, and these are not moderated by age, sex, birthplace, or education level. Um, children just seeing other people being treated um, with racist behavior also have negative health effects. So let's move now um, to health disparities in people with CF from racial and ethnic minority groups. I'm using that demographically. So um, this, is, this has always been important, but we need to recognize that the US population is becoming more diverse. So if you look at the proportion of people in various, um, these are census-based race and ethnicity categories, which themselves are wrong, but it's all we have to use. Um, we see that um, there is a large growth in populations and this, this big white, um, I'm sorry, this big blue uh, bar is white, not Hispanic people. Um, and then we see this in cystic fibrosis. So this large study of newborn screening that I've been conducting with many collaborators, um, we found that about 7% of infants born in the United States, between 2010 and 2018 who had cystic fibrosis were black. If you look at the data in the registry, it's more like three, 4%, um, 13% Hispanic. These are not mutually exclusive. So um, this is who has cystic fibrosis. And you see that there is um, a major difference between the CFTR mutation classes um, with 33% of infants from minoritized groups being in an unclassified using um, these criteria group, and that represents many more uh, rare variants. Um, so that will become important shortly. We've known for years that there's increased mortality in minoritized people with cystic fibrosis. Um, Hispanic people with CF have an 85% increased risk of death and black uh, people with CF 48% compared to non-Hispanic white people with CF. Notice how that's like a reference group in this paper as much of this research is. Hispanic people with CF have a mean age at death um, that's almost six years earlier than non-Hispanic white people. And in California, only 75% of Hispanic people with CF survived 18 years after diagnosis compared to over 90% in non-Hispanic white people. These are pre-newborn screening era data, um, but that only makes one I'm going to tell you a little bit more important. And I have to um, thank Megan McGarry who made the original versions of these slides. So I already told you um, Hispanic and black people with CF have worse Uh, mortality, but they also have worse lung function. And so if you look at um, the uh, disparity, again, with Hispanic people and non-Hispanic white people with CF, it's, it's significant and it starts very early in life. Similarly, Black people with CF have a lower uh, percent predicted lung function. This is even with race adjustment, so it's even lower, lower. Um, and this hasn't really been studied um, since the late nineteen nineties. Um, Megan's done some work on infections, and so a couple of years ago, published this paper showing um, that the Hispanic CF population um, got their uh, initial. Um, Pseudomonas aeruginosa at a younger age very recently published another paper showing that the same is true of staph aureus. We don't know the origins of this, um, but it's true. So why does this happen? Um, Particularly uh, in Hispanic people with CF, um, they have a higher body mass index, That should make you healthier. They have more pancreatic sufficiency, so milder CFTR variants. um, And uh, those should cause better outcomes. Um, And if we just look at socioeconomic status, and a lot of people will say, well, you know, it's because less money. But you can statistically, you can't take that out of a person, but you can statistically adjust for it. These disparities persist. And I want to point out um, that respiratory health inequality and actually health inequity crosses conditions. It crosses geographies. This is a recent um, ERS monograph, European Respiratory Society on Inequalities in Respiratory Health. Um, And you can't read that, but that's all of the background and then what the inequalities as they call them look like across different diseases. So this is not just cystic fibrosis but there are specific things in cystic fibrosis that we have the opportunity to change. Um, And this is a complex slide, but it's available on the website of the National Institute of Minority Health and Health Disparities. Um, And so it talks about biologic, behavioral, physical, socio-cultural, and healthcare system influences on health, and then the levels of influence, individual, interpersonal, community, and societal. We overly blame people, individuals, or in family units on their poor health outcomes. That is the framework of a lot of medical visits, and until we look at this more contextually, we will not be able to overcome health inequities. So now I'm going to get to really the major topic of this talk, which is how our biggest advances in CF diagnosis and treatment increases health disparities. And I am in favor of and conducted research on and helped to implement things like CFTR modulators. Um, the advent of newborn screening and I would propose that the health benefits that we've seen in the CF community over the past 10 years are due to those two things but this is, there is a widening gap. So um, this is 2022 survival you know as estimated by the CF foundation 56 years when I started doing this, it was half or maybe a little bit less than half. Um, so that's you know, woo. And it is, you know, it's good news. But, oh, and this this slide was shown earlier. <laughs> by an earlier speaker, but uh, pointing out that we actually made a lot of progress before modulators that just caused an inflection point. Um, And I think as kids can start on these uh, disease modifying therapies earlier, um, we will see even more and more. But there, these breakthroughs are associated with inequities. And I'm going to start with um, modulator therapies and then go to newborn screening. So um, you guys remember this guy on the left? I liked him. He was from my state. I have a good friend um, who is good friends is good friends with him and Michelle, and she had a, a VHS tape of one of her kids throwing up on. Mr. Obama, and um, she got rid of it. It's kind of too bad. But anyway, this is when he announced the Precision Medicine Initiative. Do people remember that? This has turned into the All of Us program, which seeks to get a much more diverse representative population in genetic, environmental, um, and uh, self-reported data, along with electronic health records. But but. The guy he's shaking hands with um, was one of the first people to get Ivocaptor, and he was talking about how Kaleidoco had been life-changing and really setting this goal with CF and modulator therapy as an example for what could be done with precision medicine. And um, this, uh, this has been very much in the lay media over time. Um, iva Kafter, and then more recently, Alexa Cavert. I can't even say it, Trikafta. Um, So best health news over the last decade. And so where are we now? So these highly effective modulators are available to about 90% of US people with CF based on their CFTR gene variant. Um, And not everyone who has genetic eligibility can actually tolerate or take these medications, but there's wide coverage for most people. And um, you probably saw the press release that Ivacaftor is now available for people who are four weeks old and older. Those are hard trials to do by the way, Um, but uh, that is uh, an, the last milestone for that particular drug. And then um, the uh, alexicaftor, tazacaftor, ivacaftor um, has gone through clinical trials much more rapidly than um, the previous modulators. So it's now approved for people who are two or older. So that's exciting, but not for everyone. So this is, from the same data set that I showed earlier, just looked at a different way. So if you are white and not Hispanic, um, you have about a 90% chance of having F508 Dell, um, which makes you eligible for Trikafta. Um, If you are Hispanic, you've got a 70% chance. Um, If you're black, 60-ish, um, if you're Asian, so it's this is um, a very marked disparity for these highly effective therapies, and and this is um, even with some label extensions, um, there there's still a huge um, change in eligibility, um, so. Another issue we, we have is underrepresentation in trials for which people are eligible. So, this is a paper um, that uh, Megan led in 2016. Um, 82% almost of CF clinical trials didn't even report race or ethnicity. Um, and these were mostly not modulator trials because there weren't as many of them. And there she is. No, that's not her. Um, sorry. <laughs> I saw blonde. Um so uh if it was reported um over a quarter had no uh participants from racial and ethnic minority groups. Um so it's uh it's a big problem, it's a big problem still. Um if you look at it graphically, um, the, this is the overall participation in CF drug clinical trials, um, but from in people from minoritized groups from 1999 to uh, 2015. And this is still a problem. So this was a letter written um, after the reports of uh, the Trikafta studies came out and there was no, they didn't do a demographic table that included race and ethnicity. So um, this was a letter to the editor um, and then they responded, you know, first of all, they agreed and they did publish um, the distribution, but um, this is a really convoluted explanation the prevalence of this mutation among people with cystic fibrosis is only 15 to 25% in North Africa and Turkey, but about 75% in Northern Europe. Well, first of all, these studies were not done in North Africa and Turkey. And second of all, that is still, you know, if it's 15 to 25% um, only, then 15 to 25% of people should be from those backgrounds. So um, it was not, uh, there was a response, it was not satisfactory for me personally. So let's move on now to newborn screening. So um, the most important thing for you to understand as we go into this is that CF newborn screening improves outcomes. And um, this slide is a little hard to look at, but, Cystic fibrosis for most people is fatal in early life if it's not diagnosed. If you have pancreatic insufficiency from birth, you can um, die of malnutrition, vitamin deficiency, or salt loss, hyponatremia before you're even diagnosed. Um, But for for people who are diagnosed, um, your childhood weight and height predict not just to your lung function, because we've all heard that multiple times, but actually how likely you are to live until you're an adult. So this is a paper um, published in uh, 2013 um, that just showed kids starting at age four, again, this was new, newborn, before newborn screening, this cohort, but if your weight is less, weight percentile is less than the 10th, Um, in that blue line, you're much, much less likely than if it's greater than the 50th, our goal for people with CF uh, to live to 20. So um, this is a pretty contemporary cohort. So we have to keep that in mind. Um, And then, you know, Phil Farrell led a randomized controlled trial of newborn screening in Wisconsin, in which they screened everyone, but only recalled half of the kids, but there was a safety net. So nobody actually went undiagnosed. If they weren't diagnosed early, they went and found them. So it wasn't as bad as it could have been. Also cohort studies. So clearly, clearly showed a benefit. Um, And so the Centers for Disease Control of the United States recommended screening for cystic fibrosis to be added to the newborn screening panel for all states in 2004. You need to know if you don't already that what is screened for and how it's screened is a state decision. It's a state public health decision. It is not a nationally, there are recommendations made on what to screen for, but not how. So that um, plays in uh, a lot to what I'm gonna say next. Um, this is a slide, it's, it's a little bit pale, but this uh, Margaret Rosenfeld led this study and it got quite a bit of press because it actually shows that um, newborn screening is working the way we would expect it to. So if you look at these blue bars, that's a cohort of people before newborn screening and then the yellow are after, and this is all age adjusted. So from early life, you've got better um, weight you've got better height and you've got better pulmonary function. Um, And you'll note on this bottom panel, if you look at that graph and the colors aren't projecting all that well, but um, the lung function is actually about the same um, when it's first measured in the early years of life. But then the newborn screening group is better than the um, not screened group. And this is because you have lung disease that's silent that doesn't play out in your lung function until later, um, but, uh, but very strong data. So again, woohoo, it's working, but we've got problems. So um, in the newborn screening guidelines, we, um, it is recommended that everybody is seen in the first, month of life by 28 days, ideally. We split these data up a little bit differently. So what you see is in the dark blue here, you know, most kids born between 2010 and 2018, that's 2010 I should have mentioned is the year that every state finally did newborn screening. Um, So it took a while for everyone to get on board and get their programs. organized, but so most did, but look at that very long tail and how many kids are diagnosed after 30 days, 40 days, 60 days, and even on into the uh, first two years of life. So many kids are not benefiting. Um, Now, if you look at the distribution of uh, when someone is first seen for testing or clinical evaluation or both after, uh, well, I can't say after positive newborn screen because the way the registry is set up, there's a little fuzziness, but since we started newborn screening, um, kids who are not Hispanic and white are seen at a median age of less than 20 days. There's a shift over, Um, for kids from minoritized groups. But what's really important is the curve. Um, Let me see if I can get this pointer to work. Yeah, so this is, you see that this peak is way lower than that peak, and that there's this big curve over here. So some of these kids are being seen for the first time at a CF center when they are much, much older than they should be to get the full benefit of newborn screening. Um, And we see here that the white non-Hispanic kids, um, their weight at the first year, 12 to 24 months of age, is above zero, so this is a Z-score, which is a statistical way of looking at data that makes it easier. So a Z-score of zero is normal for the general population of people. Below zero is less, you know, worse nutrition. But again, see this tail over here and how many kids are down here, one to two standard deviations below that. So so why is that important? Um, I'll get to in a minute, but public health practice really influences the detection of cystic fibrosis. So when you have fewer CFTR variants analyzed on a newborn screening panel um, and all states now use some form of genetic testing in newborn screening, um, you're gonna detect fewer people from minoritized populations. So um, this is a study that Megan again led um, where we looked at all the people in the CF registry by their reported race and ethnicity And then we looked at all the different genetic panels that are used by US states, and we looked at um, the number, and this this is just two of them. One is the one that's the lowest number that's often used, the American College of Medical Genetics 23 panel, which we know is based on people with European ancestry. Um, And then the Illumina 139, sounds like a lot of variants, right? But even with these, you're gonna miss a lot of babies and particularly um, Black and Asian babies, but also a lot of Hispanic babies with CF. This little map up here shows the panel number. So all these states with the um, darkest uh, color filled in solid um, are testing for at least 139. there are a couple of states um, that, this is showing up differently here too, I don't know what's going on with the color scheme, but um, until recently there were two, now there is one state that only tests for F508 DEL. I showed you the data, that state is Mississippi. They have one of the largest uh, percentage of black people in the state of Mississippi in the United States, they only test for that gene variant. Now. There, this is compounded by diagnostic bias. And um, Ray told you her story of diagnostic bias uh, last night. Um, and this is just something from an infograph that I'm gonna show you in a minute um, about the fact that we have so much delay. But cystic fibrosis has been seen as a white person's disease How this evolved, I think, just had to do with language most common in people of northern European ancestry, um, because Dorothy Anderson, who first reported cystic fibrosis, pointed out that it occurred in um, people from all races and geographies. That's the way that she did it. But um, here we see uh, Michelle and Terry Wright. Many of you know them. They uh, founded the National Organization of African-Americans with Cystic Fibrosis. They have been um, on the road talking about this, Um, but uh, families get this. and, And we did some work through the CF Foundation, through NOAA SAF, Um, And these are just some quotes, some of them a little bit um, altered to not, you know, tell other people's stories, but I was told my child CF was impossible because I'm Puerto Rican and my husband is black. I was told my child did not have CF based on a negative newborn screening test, even though his brother has CF. I was accused of not feeding my child, child with failure to thrive. No one was listening to me, this happens. Our community has suffered from this. Um, In terms of some other whys, in addition to the nutritional issues, um, babies who are diagnosed later um, with CF, uh, this is a median of 47 days. So it's like under seven weeks. Um, They're much more likely to be hospitalized with a pulmonary exacerbation in the first year of life early lung disease is something else that has a health trajectory that's negative. And this can be prevented by starting therapy early. So how do we make this better? Um, This is a quote from Ibram X. Kendi, um, scholar at the University of Pennsylvania now, racial inequity is a problem of bad policy, not bad people. Um, And so how do we reduce the gap in highly effective therapies? Well, um, we need to have disease modifying therapies for everyone, even with better representation, even with testing rare gene variants, there are people who are going to not make a CFTR protein. If you have no protein, you can't be modulated. So genetic therapies, but also ion channel therapies, we studied these before there were modulators kind of fizzled off, didn't get a good one, but there are lots of things that can be done. And and then this concept of CFTR scaffolding in improving the protein structure without um, a modulator type of therapy. So they're gene variant agnostic. I can't explain that to you. I've just read about it and it's very cool. Um, The other thing we need to do is we need to be sure that we are giving people good healthcare and to improve the trustworthiness of healthcare. Um, And this is foundational to giving every person the best care that they can get now, regardless of what treatments we have, and also something needed if we are ever going to be able to have full engagement of a representative population in clinical trials. I already showed you Harriet Washington's book, but um, this paper um, was by a couple of health equity researchers at Johns Hopkins. Um, COVID-19 racism and racism in the pursuit of healthcare and research worthy of trust. So we in the healthcare field and organizations that support improvements in healthcare need to be worthy of trust, and we need to look at the um, what the literature says about trust and uh, barriers to research participation. We need to have a diverse workforce. Um, I'm not going to go into all of this, but you have heard- heard this before, and then we need to improve detection and diagnosis for everyone, so I'm very fortunate to be leading a grant funded by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, um, Chronic Disease Prevention Program, and we are raising awareness, and um, this is a partnership across uh, CF Centers, public health experts, and um, NOAA Um, I've shown you that we need these uh, changes in newborn screening. There are now 719 CFTR variants known to cause disease. One state is testing for all of them today, that's Wisconsin, because they were using a next generation platform and using that platform, you just decide what you want to call out and you can add them infinitely. We have to reduce bias in healthcare, and we have to work towards racial justice and real community engagement, which isn't like I'm doing a study, come tell me how I could get people like you to participate. It's actually asking people from the very beginning to help um, make studies. And I'm just gonna end with this one, um, which is a statement about love. So when you think about caring for people broadly, you have to think about love and um, I have this quote from Avedistan Abedian. Raise your hand if you know who that is. All right, we got one in the back. Avedistan Abedian is credited with starting health care quality improvement and um, was very rigorous, used a lot of statistical methodology, but as he was at the end of his life, he said that ultimately the secret of quality is love, if you have love, you can work backward to monitor and improve the systems. We need more love in our community. And then I'll I'll wrap it up with uh, Bell Hooks, who was a scholar. She died a couple of years ago. You should read her works. The moment we choose to love, we begin to move against domination. We begin to move towards freedom and we act in ways that liberate ourselves and others. So take that away that we need to practice medicine, interact with each other and conduct our research with love. These are my many collaborators and funders. Thank you very much for your attention.